Welcome back to The Purpose Effect, the podcast about purpose-driven businesses and what we can learn about solving some of the world's biggest problems from the women who are solving them. I'm Elena Kersey, and I'm on a mission to learn how we can build better, better work, stronger communities, a healthier planet. If you believe there's a better world out there waiting for us, then this podcast is for you. I think the key strength for any entrepreneur is resilience because life is never going to be a, you know, a straight line uh, trajectory upwards. There's always ups and downs. As long as you believe in what you're doing, the ups and downs are just something you have to push through. In 2012, Stephanie Chai launched the Lux Nomad, a flash sales travel booking site. At the time, she was one of five similar startups to launch in Asia but she didn't have the Stanford or Harvard-educated team that investors were looking to fund. She didn't have a lot of money, and she didn't have a track record in either tech or travel. But she did have three things, which have meant that more than 10 years later, the Lux Nomad is the only one of those five businesses left standing. These three things are an ability to use the resources and the network she had to maximum effect, knowing how to hire and inspire the right kind of person for her team, and an ability to stare a challenge in the face with optimism. Today, we're going to go beyond fundamentals and talk about some of the less tangible aspects of building a resilient startup. But to begin with, we talk about how Steph began her journey into entrepreneurship with an online wedding directory called The Wedding Guide Asia and a goal to launch her first business, by 25. I think when I started Wedding Guide Asia, it was really just more, here's a nice little first business. I can sort of dip my toes in, kind of understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Um, uh, one of my best friends got married. She was like, you should do this little business model for Asia. So, so I did it. But I never felt that was my long-term business. I always knew that was just a stepping stone, get my feet wet. So when Lux Nomad came around, I had a goal of starting my own business by 25. So I always had this plan. All right. When I'm at university, my early twenties, I'll be a model. I'll do television, et cetera, because that's fun. But by 25, I should have my own business. And what I realized was it's not that easy to find a business idea you fully believe in, right? And go all the way. So I think I started Wedding Guide Asia when I was 27 and Lux Nomad when I was maybe 29, at least I hadn't launched it at 29, but I had started the, the legwork. And a friend of mine owed me a business idea. He's quite a famous entrepreneur, actually. And uh, he was always sending me business ideas to get me back into my good books. And then he sent me one called Jet Setter in the US. He owed you a business idea. Why? Did, <laughs> did you give him one? It's a long story. He took a business idea of mine. <laughs> it's a long story. I have to ask him one day if he's okay for me to talk about it. Yeah, he's, quite, he's probably one of the most famous internet entrepreneurs in Asia, um, but we're still good friends. So he owed me a business idea. He was always sending me something. And uh, he saw a jet setter. And he was like, hey, you like to stay in nice places and you don't want to pay so much. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> so it was basically luxury flash sales for hotels. And it had been started by the Gilt Group in the U.S. And we were basically one of five startups in Asia that did a copycat of the business model and launched it. And honestly, like, I just, it was a gut feel. Like, I looked at it five minutes. I didn't really do days of research and say, okay, I've evaluated the pros and cons, you know, 
I'm going to do it. I just like emailed him back and I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to do this. And, uh, and so we launched it. I managed to raise about 200K US from an angel investor in Singapore, William Clipton. And I didn't even have a proper website. I just sort of had the idea. But what was good is because I had done Wedding Guide, they were like, okay, so she can build something and run something, you know, so that gives you a bit of credibility. And I'd studied finance uh, at university, although I never practiced. I could at least read a P&L and build a budget, simple one. <laughs> so, so there I went. I started Lux Nomad. We did luxury hotel flash sales, which in about six months, I could tell like, this is not really going to work for Asia. And there are a few components of why that is, you know, namely because when you're doing the whole Groupon flash sale model, it's always dependent on building an email list. And sometimes people get bored of the constant sale emails and they fall off. Then you have to add new emails. Uh, and in Asia, we have a very fragmented region that's going to cost you a little bit more to market to everyone. So fast forward a couple of years, we found we Villa Bookings was working for us. I actually already wanted to expand into Villa Management in 2014. But my board, you know, as a sole founder, they're like, focus first on your villa management. I mean, your villa bookings instead of jumping to management, which in hindsight was probably the right thing to do. So, so yeah, I did the villa booking. Then 2016, I brought on like a COO and then we did our first deal in 2017. We bought a villa management company in Bali and then another one in 2019 in Thailand. Okay. So a couple of things. Firstly, when you launched the Lux Nomad, you said there was five startups playing in the same space in Asia. Are any of those startups still around? No, they all died. That's interesting. So how did you manage to stay competitive in that space? So there was one key competitor to us called Impulse Flyer, which had raised double the amount. They'd raised 500,000 U.S., and the CEO had come from a travel background and he had a proper CTO and he had proper CMO, but she came from San Fran, you know, the Valley. <laughs> so it was really a, they're the A team. You're not an A team. It was me, a girl who had studied linguistics in Christchurch and another girl who had worked at Agoda for a bit. So it was like, you know, you're, you were in television, you're kind of a weird team, which was kind of, which was true on paper. So the difference with us and our Singapore competitor was we had less money. I hired my team out of my Malaysia as well, whereas he hired in Singapore. When I looked at the commission and the earnings, I was like, there's just no way we could keep everyone in Singapore. And there was some pushback initially from my investors because they were like, no, you know, Singapore is better. You got to set up. They've got to be next to you. And I was just like, no, it's like one sing to three ringgit. I can hire some really good people in KL for, um, you know, far less. And I knew Malaysia because I am Malaysian. So I, I know what the talent is like. So I went ahead and did that. We saw that they were just, you know, the paradox of raising funds is sometimes you just want to spend it. So they were probably paying, I think they paid a squire for an email blast as one example. And, and then we got it in our inbox and my team was like, Hey, they're advertising with a squire, what should we do? And I said, okay, Let's contact Esquire. I know I'll find someone there that we know. And, and then I went to Esquire and said, Hey, you know, we're a startup. We don't have money, but I'll get you a giveaway from a hotel partner. If you could give me an email for free. 
And that's what we did. Then to the hotel, I was like, hey, I got you an amazing opportunity in Esquire. Um, so I was always looking for win-wins. And that's how we also started with the whole influencer celebrity states. Because it was actually, I was in Phuket at this hotel, Sri Panwat, which is really amazing. And I remember looking at the ceiling and I was like, there needs to be something different that we're doing. It can't just be, you know, here's the sale, et cetera. What can we do that's different? And having come from television, I thought, you know what, this is like, this was a starting error of Kim Kardashian. And I thought people are really interested to see what people are doing on social media, especially if it's a celeb or somebody, no one really cares about the travel writer so much anymore. So I sort of rung all these TV people or celebs I knew, like one was Paula Taylor in Thailand, another was Alan Wu in Singapore. And I created a little like nomad thing and just put all their faces there. And, and I remember as Alan said, he was like, Oh, you know what? You've always been nice. So I'm going to say yes. You can just put my photo up there. Actually, I do owe him a holiday. <laughs> Poor guy. So that's how we started. And, you know, nowadays you see everyone is a freaking influencer, but we were pretty much the first in Asia to start it. I don't think I saw anyone else do it back then in 2012. And I guess that's where your TV background really came. You know, at first people thought that that was, maybe a negative. That's why you were not the A-team because your background was in TV, but then you could bring that experience and those contacts into the Lux Nomad, which was a win. I mean, not the only win. I don't think that influencer marketing on its own is what makes a business work. (laughs) But um, the fact that you were, I guess, really careful with money and really clear about what your intentions were for the business as well. Yes, no, absolutely. And that's one pitch I gave to investors. I said, I've got a media, you know, and sort of celebrity network. You usually have to pay them thousands of dollars, but because I have a personal relationship with them, they'll come and stay for free. And we still actually continue that. We don't pay people to come and stay with us. So as you've brought up your background in television and media, there's something I wanted to ask about. Um, because as I was preparing for this chat, I came across a profile of you and, and you might be familiar with the one I'm talking about, but it made a big deal of the way that you look and your background as a model and a TV presenter. And when I read it, I was immediately curious as to what your thoughts might be on it. Because the thing that struck me is that you are the only founder of the Lux Nomad. You don't have a co-founder. Correct. And the fact that you are a female founder with no male co-founder and you've raised a number of rounds, right? More rounds, but yeah, yeah. You're in a very small club. Yeah. So when the focus is on the way that you look and that you're not just any woman, but one with curves, I just feel like this kind of media focus makes it more difficult in general for female founders or I don't know, potentially puts them off. Have you ever felt that you weren't taken seriously in the startup world because you're a woman? To be fair, growing up in New Zealand and I went to an all-girls school, some girls where they apparently developed strong women. Um, You know, Helen Clark went there. And I've always found in New Zealand, I think I was very lucky to grow up here where I never felt I was, you know, there was any gender sort of bias, et cetera, at least not in my educational years. And then when I went to Asia and I was in entertainment, you know, it kind of favors the female, right? You don't really read about 
famous male models or actors, etc. So then I sort of continued this kind of journey where I had a very optimistic outlook that we are treated as equals. Probably in the early start of my founder journey at Lux Nomad, I was very lucky, like my board, it's all male actually, my board, but they're fantastic. They also invest in other female co-founders and I've never felt, you know, any sort of different treatment from them. I would say probably fundraising when it gets to bigger stages and larger sums, there might be an unspoken sort of sense of gender bias. And I say that only because you look at the numbers of how much women fundraise and et cetera and so forth. Okay. If you look at the Singapore landscape, there are actually a lot of great venture cap funds and there are women founders who are raising a lot of money as well. So it's not to say you know, everybody is biased, et cetera, and so forth. I definitely think, um, at least in Singapore, it's quite a great playing field. Where I might have experienced a little bit of, I don't know if you call it sexism, is probably when you're dealing with people who come from more traditional industries, be it like real estate, et cetera, so forth, where there's mainly been a lot of men involved, uh, you know, and they might be like, oh, yeah, so he's the guy who will run it maybe one of my, you know, C-suite execs. And he's like, I get it. You're pretty marketing, et cetera. And, and usually they tend to be older people <laughs> who might say that as well. Um, maybe, you know, then, then younger, I wouldn't say I hear it very often from someone who's in their thirties or forties. So yeah, it, it takes time, I think, for people to adjust. And in Asia, we are not as outspoken. So, you know, the struggle I probably had with that was, do I embarrass this person and say, hey, you shouldn't say that. Actually, I am the brains, dude, and I'm working seven days a week or because he's older than me and, you know, he's just being a bit uncle. So there's that paradox. And I, I did kind of keep quiet because there were other people in the room and I just went, hmm, not sure. I made like some sort of joke. So I think we're still, yeah, we're still not there yet, right? And it's partly the Asian culture. Like part of me wishes maybe I should have said something to put him in this box. But then another part of me is like, well, there's maybe a time and place. Yeah, for sure. A time and a place. And and I get that whole generational issue and wanting to be respectful nonetheless to the man who's a little bit uncle. But (laughs) were there ever any concerns about the team behind you or the business model in Asia? And what have you learned that it's important to get right as you go through these various ending rounds and evolutions? Um, I think when we were expanding into villa management for the first time, it was definitely hard for us to raise funds because we'd never done it before, right? And I didn't really have a team who had done sort of M&A in villa management, et cetera. So that was hard. We just got more an internal round of funding from our current shareholders and really like bootstrapped it. And we managed to get through and and turned both acquisitions around. I think like my the Thailand acquisition had gone through quite a bit of turnover with senior management and had lost some villas. So when we took it over, it had lost about maybe half a million. And we turned that into a profitable bottom line in about a year and a half, which is great. Same with the Bali entity that we bought was a different situation. It was it was a uh, sort of the second biggest in Bali, and it was just the founder was so busy because her daughters had been doing a fantastic NGO initiative, so it needed a lot of 
foundation building, structuring, et cetera, sort of rebuilding of the reputation of the company. So we we turn both around. So once you do that, I think you've got a bit more of a track record. Then yes, it's easier to raise funds. You must be a really strong leader if you're able to turn around two businesses that for various reasons were struggling because financial management and, you know, the strategy is one thing, but to take those teams and get them to buy into what you're doing and turn things around so quickly is a huge achievement. And I guess that must come down to your own management style. Was there anything you learned there? I think to to be a good leader, you always have to be optimistic and positive, you know, even when, I don't know, things hit the fan, uh, you, you have to look at the bright side of it. And that's something I've always maintained um, throughout. And of course, it was really hard to motivate people and, during COVID. And even now, say some of my team members are a little bit burnt out just because we've been so busy with reopening and it's a little bit harder to hire. So you've just got to keep, keep them smiling and remind them of the vision, remind them of the purpose, et cetera, and so forth. But I would say probably one of my biggest strengths was hiring there's only so much you can do as one person. You have to be really good at picking the right people to join you and then also trying to groom them and steady them as well. I think for me, looking back, probably I just had a good nose for things. You know, even when I was doing the deals, I remember my COO, she came from investment banking, private equity. And she was like, when I first told her, she said, oh, we'll never get this. You know, we can't afford to pay what they would be asking for, et cetera, and so forth. And I said, no, we're going to do it. And this is not like, you know, when you're doing your big $100 million deals in investment banking, these are, you know, mom and pop companies. So it's a completely different minefield. And yeah, and I was right. And I think I, I managed to negotiate the deal and put people in place in the parts that probably are not my strengths, like you know, execution of legal documents or doing the DD, et cetera. I can read the review, but it's probably not the best use of my time for me to do it myself. So you mentioned the challenges of COVID and I want to talk about that a little bit because not only did you manage to stay afloat during such a tough time for any travel business, I mean, so many travel businesses closed their doors during COVID, but Am I right in thinking you actually grew the number of bookings that you had in Bali during that period? Yes, we did. So, you know, I bought the Bali entity end of 2017. And I would say the first couple of years, 2018, 2019, we were really still learning about the management business um, and the distribution, how to maximize direct bookings and so forth. So when it came down to COVID, actually, it was a fantastic opportunity for our team to really step up. And we did 70% group occupancy in Bali for the whole year in 2021. We were still profitable, namely because of that. And also we had taken salary cuts and reduced the teams. Well, we didn't reduce the team size. We decided to retain everyone in Bali, but by taking a salary cut, you know, and we made sure like with everybody, can you still put food on the table? Can you still pay for your necessities, et cetera? We wanted to maintain that. We didn't want anyone to be you know, in, in a serious sort of issue. But the problem with COVID was you really didn't know how long it would take. I remember in 2020, they said, oh, by summertime, July 2020, you'll be done. And 
I think come May 2020, we, we just looked at it and we said, we've got to take a really hard line here. A friend's husband who owns a hedge fund gave me fantastic advice. He said, you know, Steph, if I was your investor and you asked me for some funding to support you, I would want to see that you're really sort of nearly break even. You know, um, I wouldn't want to be putting a lot of money into a high burn, et cetera. And I took his advice and it was the best thing we did. And I think like many companies, we also realized maybe we didn't need so many people as we did pre-COVID because we kind of did 80% of it with much less. Some of the key things we did in COVID that helped a lot was, you know, we didn't fill certain positions, maybe in HODs who left and we promoted the number twos. And the number two's salary was less than the original HODs, but they pretty much did 80% of what the previous HOD did. In Bali, we actually added villas as well. So we grew the portfolio and we're continuing um, to do that today. So COVID was a positive for us in a way. Because it kind of allowed you to trim the fat and focus on being profitable sooner? Yes, profitable sooner. And also, you know, part of our strategy is always to look at um, different opportunities to acquire companies. And I think COVID, in terms of M&A, people are more open to selling their company now, partly not just because of the cash situation, but there's also COVID fatigue. Like, you know, I've done this for a few years. I'm a bit done with it. When it happened, it was very stressful. We probably had three months of cash left when COVID happened because, you know, no one, no one budgets for like zero revenue, which is what we had initially when there was lockdown. We're like, Ugh. and I remember I took like three months, no salary. I cut my salary to like 2K US a month. Basically I could have worked at Starbucks, I think in Hong Kong, probably earned more money. <laughs> um, you know, but it was a fantastic learning curve for me personally, because as a CEO, I really got into the cash flow and the financials, which for previously my CEO really oversaw. And now, even today, I'm really tied to budget and so forth. So I learned a lot there as CEO and also just navigating through this very challenging position of how do you make money when, you know, my clients can't arrive in the country was, was a huge challenge. So I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm kind of happy went through it and survived. (laughs) I have to say, I think that's an incredibly optimistic mindset to have, you know, for a CEO of a travel business to say, actually, I'm pleased that COVID happened because I learned all of these lessons. Your, Your mindset is like relentlessly optimistic. How did you develop that? How do you develop that kind of mental resilience? Is that something you've always had Or have you had to teach yourself to find the silver linings? I've generally always been a very optimistic person. And I would say it's kind of weird because my parents are not the most optimistic. They're quite like realists and, you know, they weirdly don't believe in climate change, but that's another story. Um, So I've always been like, you know, very grateful when someone's like, oh, this sucks. I'm like, oh, but at least we have this. So I think it's my nature and I, a few key things I do is I try to do meditation or like now I sort of picked up Qigong a bit. I think it's really good. And I try to work out five times a week as well. So 
there's different things. Of course, sometimes you can get into a negative um, frame of mind, but I've been doing a lot of awareness work. So even now when something really bad happens, I probably won't sleep for like one night. I'll be sad the second day, but third day I'll be like, all right, how do we fix this? Mm. Yeah. And I guess if that's your process, then you can start to prepare for it, right? You know, mentally it's, yep, this has happened. I'll give myself time to grieve or be sad or frustrated or worried, but then we move on and then we find the solution. But do you think that COVID has permanently changed parts of the travel industry, either for operators like you or for consumers? Do you think that there's going to be some lasting changes? Like, for example, is travel going to stay more expensive because it's going to be less frequent? Or do you think that people are going to start traveling again the way they did pre-COVID? I think there's a few key changes from COVID that will go back. In terms of will it continue to be expensive, I don't think so. Because why we're seeing high prices is, you know, there's not enough planes in the world. There's not enough people in the world uh, joining travel because they went away during COVID and did something else. So in time, price will subside, you know, reduce In terms of people traveling less, I mean, I definitely don't travel as much as before just because now you can do Zoom, et cetera, and so forth. So I think business-wise, maybe travel may dip. In terms of leisure, I think that will increase because now you can work from anywhere. And remote working, it might go to hybrid. Some people may have to go back in the office, but that is never really going to go away. I think that is a permanent change that's very hard to undo because people have seen it worked. They now also value a bit more work-life balance as well after COVID. So that will stay remote working. And, you know, even, even my brother took two weeks working from Bali. I can see everyone's just working from everywhere nowadays. And that's really helped us, I think, in Bali at least. You know, low season months were as busy as high season. And what about your own team at the Lux Nomad? What's your remote work policy? Because your team is quite dispersed, right, throughout Asia? Correct. We have our back office in Manila in Malaysia. So that has always kind of been remote because the traffic in Manila Manila is horrendous. We are looking at maybe it's like twice a month everyone meets up, but generally everyone's pretty happy working from home. If not, they might spend two to three hours of traffic in a day. Uh, in KL, we had an office, but we let it go during COVID. So we may revisit getting like a co-working or do hybrid. You know, Thailand and Bali, they have an office, but we've become a little bit flexible. For example, one of the team's reservations, uh, because they work longer hours, we've let them work from home. And we can tell they're doing a great job because every ticket gets answered, you know, within like 10, 15 minutes. And I'm happy to do that because... As well, because the reservations team also tend to be female, just by the nature of it. And they have kids, so they get to work from home, be close to their children, and do a great job. So again, it's like looking at the win-win situation for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of remote work or hybrid work. I obviously recognize that there are some businesses where that's uh, much more difficult, if not impossible. But I do believe that, I mean, we can see it already. Workers don't want to go back to fully in office nine to eight type roles. I think we all need to adapt. But 
from the perspective of travel, what do you think the future of travel has in store for us? Are there some changes that you can already see on the horizon that you are positioning the Lux Nomad to be able to meet when those changes or challenges come to your door? I think you'll probably look at two fundamental uh, trends moving forward. One is, you know, travel better, be green when you travel, right? How do you offset a bit of carbon footprint uh, and so forth? So that's something we're looking at furthering beyond, like we were the first villa management company in Bali to get rid of the plastic bottles and put, you know, uh, refillable glass bottles in and things like that. But we're not 100% green, so it'll be interesting to see if we can further develop that via with solar, you know, or recyclables, et cetera. Uh, sometimes it's hard because, like, Bali isn't really a place where it's easy to recycle as well. And I would say AI is going to come into play. So, you know, maybe in, like, five years or so, instead of talking to a person, you'll be talking to the AI robot and saying, where can I go in Bali? And it's totally over voice. You might be driving your car or maybe you're not driving your car because there's a Tesla drive, driverless car. So you're just, you know, and, and so AI might come into play. And, but I think experiences will continue to grow. We're at a point, I think, in society where we want to do something different that's fulfilling, that's enriching, et cetera, and unique. So that will continue to grow. Mm, yeah. And I think also AI in cultivating personalized experiences could be an interesting space to watch. So then our experience is going to be much more of a focus for you. I think that's a, definitely something we, we want to explore. Maybe it's like more healing experiences, you know, you can, because Bali is home to thousands of healers. Uh, you get a water blessing, et cetera, so forth, or some unique food dining experience like sushi chef comes to the villa so we definitely want to get more creative i think it's just you know we spend covid really in a defensive position of every dollar counts what is the worst business advice you've ever been given worst business advice i'd say maybe early on was you know fire everyone in malaysia set up a team in singapore that was definitely not great advice, and I'm glad I didn't take it. Um, I think I tend to forget bad business advice. That's a unique skill, I think. Just forget all of the stuff that doesn't serve you. Yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes it's never bad. It has good intentions, but it just may not work for what we're doing. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? Let me have a think. Well, when I was originally going to start the business, there was another girl who wanted to do it with me. And I said, oh, so are you leaving your job? Because I had hired someone to run Wedding Guide Asia so I could be full-time on the Lux Nomad. And she said, I can't leave my law job just yet. And I said, why? And she said, well, I've got a lifestyle to maintain. You know, I, I remember my friend who had given me the business idea, actually, he was sitting next to me when I was having a call with her and he was sort of writing notes on paper and he was like, no one ever built a great business part-time. And I was really worried at the time because I thought, oh, I'm not sure I can do this on my own. I, I need a co-founder. Everyone has a co-founder. And I remember my friend, um, he just said to me, he said, you know what, just do it yourself. Stop waiting for 
some co-founder to come around, just go for it. And so I did. And so I would say that to anyone starting a business, if you do not find the right business partner or co-founder, don't let that stop you. I went to a seminar years ago before I started Lux Nomad and it was in KL. And the only really key thing I got out of it was this guy said, people do business with people they like. And so to our partners, to our agents, I always tell the team, treat all our partners like you would a client, be good to them and, you know, be nice to them. Of course, that doesn't mean I'm a pushover. I, there's probably a few people who think I'm not very nice. I'm going to have to put my foot down, but but yeah, there's, there's no reason to, to be arrogant. And I think when people become arrogant in business, that is the start of their downfall because arrogance and ego clouds you, right? It clouds your decisions. It makes you think, I know everything. When actually the best leaders in the room, I believe, are the ones who absorb information from everyone like a sponge and then you make the dis- decision on your own. Yeah, I think also... This idea of there's never going to be a right time and a perfect situation with a perfect co-founder. If you see an opportunity and you want to build a business, you just need to go for it. I think that's one thing that I've really learned from all of the women that I've spoken to on this podcast is that many of them were unsure or the situation was not quite right, but they just went for it and they just then broke things down into small chunks and just tackled the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And many of them look back at, you know, the journey that they've had over the past five years, 10 years, however long it's been. And they're actually surprised that they are where they are because it was a situation of making the decision to start and then kind of just continuing and dealing with things as they come. What makes you feel on purpose? Do you feel on purpose? From a business perspective with the Lux Nomad, I do feel on purpose because I truly believe in what we're doing and we're trying to build like a starwood, if you will, of the villa industry, which is a very fragmented market, lots of different companies, different countries, and we're trying to consolidate and unite them all. So for, for the customer, it saves you time and trust because just as you would stay at a Marriott or Mandarin Oriental, you'd say, oh, Lux Nomad. I know their villas are going to be, you know, like this and that. And that saves you having to maybe surf through Airbnb, et cetera, and different platforms, which, you know, when we manage properties, we still put them on Airbnb because that's just a distribution platform for us. Um, In terms of personal purpose, I'm not really changing the world at the moment, not yet, but I am looking to try to get more into sustainability and see what we can do as a company to to give back because I am very concerned about climate change. So no point building great business if there's no world around you. Yeah, I I believe that. And I think that was one of the things that came out of COVID. And I also personally believe that one of the obligations of all business is to give back or be regenerative in some way. I like that regenerative. Yeah. What I like about the way you speak and the way you talk about your business is how resilient you are and how you don't seem to get bogged down by what, what has been such a challenging year and not just this year, well, not just the COVID years, 
But even from the very beginning, it just seems like challenge after challenge after challenge has come your way and you're able to, you know, take the next step. It doesn't, it doesn't drown you. I really admire that. Thanks, Lena. I think the key thing is the key strength for any entrepreneur is resilience because life is never going to be a, you know, a straight line, a trajectory upwards. There's always ups and downs. Even when, you know, my friend didn't join me at the very start, I was like, and she kind of took the developer and designer we had originally hired. I thought, oh, wow, I have to start from scratch. Is this a sign I shouldn't do it? But I just pummeled her head. And as long as you believe in what you're doing, the ups and downs are just something you have to push through. If you don't believe in what you're doing, then that's, I think, when you sort of have to sit down and see, say, should I be doing this? Should I close the business, et cetera. Did you ever have that moment during COVID? Did you ever think, oh, this is just too hard? No, I was just worried when there was one moment where I had to get some shareholder support in terms of funding, just as a bit of a buffer uh, to go through. And I remember I had one investor, <laughs> he was like, I don't know, you know, you don't really want to put money on a, what's the saying, on a sinking ship or throw money down the, throw money down the bad loo or something. Yeah, I can't good remember. money after bad. I was like, yeah, that's it. Sorry. He said, he's got it. She was like, I'm not sure about putting money. You don't want to throw good after bad. And I was like, oh no, no, but these are all the reasons you should save the company, et cetera, et cetera. And luckily he came through the months later, but I didn't think we should close it and we can't because we were managing villas. If you were just a travel agency, you could kind of switch off. Um, but yeah, I was a little bit worried then, but in my heart, I was like, there's something lucky about us because there's many times that we could have gone under and we never did, you know, and we've just managed to keep going up and up. So I just felt like there's some, a little bit of luck on our side. So we'll make it through. Do you believe that though? Do you really believe in luck? Because in the case of the Lux Nomad, it was already a competitive space and there was already a number of brands in the market doing sort of the flash sale business model when you entered. And of all of the startups that launched around the same time, you're the only one who survived. That can't be luck. That is... Yeah, yeah. No, that's not, that's not luck. <laughs> um, maybe I should rephrase that. I just think we've always had some... I wouldn't say good feng shui is the right word to say it. And even during COVID, if I sort of sat there, maybe meditated and thought about, will the business close? Is it over? It never felt it was. So I think I have a good gut and intuition to like, I know we're going to go where we're going to go. And yeah, so is that luck? I guess I think it's like 10%, a little bit of luck. There are some people I meet who have, I think a bit unlucky, maybe <laughs> just a bit negative. I now believe that there is something in this well-directed energy. I do really believe that a lot of luck comes from well-directed energy and poorly directed energy can bring what many of us would consider bad luck your way, but well-directed energy, a positive mindset, um, the ability to take small steps consistently, form good habits. I really think that those practices generate good luck. Yeah, completely agree with you. And, and I think one thing just to bear in mind is you can be on that path and you may have a couple wobbly days a month. It's 
perfectly normal. Like I am not, I do have a couple of days where I'm like, ah, everything's going wrong. Thank you so much for your time, Steph. This has been, yeah, Thanks, a really fun conversation and good luck with the way you're directing the Lux Nomads energy moving forward. I'm looking forward to see where that goes and also to see how the Lux Nomad becomes, you know, a bigger player in the sustainable or regenerative travel space. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Elena. If you are planning your next holiday and you haven't used the Lux Nomad before, all the links you need will be in the show notes. You can find beach villas all throughout Asia, but there's also ski chalets in Japan and there's villa rentals in Australia and New Zealand too. But I wanted to wrap up this episode with one takeaway and one action point for you. The takeaway for me is definitely Steph's mindset around dealing with disappointment. She gives herself some time to feel angry or sad, but then she works out how to solve the problem. She accepts that things going badly is not a sign that you've built a bad business or you're never going to hit that goal. It's just part of the process. Now here's the action point. The next time something goes completely wrong in your life or your business, feel your feelings and then ask yourself this. How long do I need to sit with this before taking action? Once the time you've given yourself is up, get back on that horse. If you've had a big win or a massive failure in your journey to creating impact, I want to hear all about it. Drop me an email or send me a DM on Instagram. Because you never know how sharing this story might help someone else. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.